Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. This week, one hour earlier. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, according to the sun. <laughs> according to everybody else, it's at the normal time. I'm here with my great friend and co-host, Mark. How are you this week? I'm very well, thanks. How are you, Walker? Always good. I'm glad to hear that. Like he says, my name is Michael Walker, and we are going to do what we normally do. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. A very short news segment, because it doesn't matter. And then the main review of the week, which is Millie Fiori by Reiner Knizia. Mark, what did you play this week? I went back to Votes for Women. This is the time by Tori Brown and Fort Circle Games, the card-driven historical game about the suffrage movement in the United States of America, leading to the passage of the Constitutional Amendment that gave women the right to vote. And I played it solo because the solo mode was particularly recommended. The Oppobot, as it is called. I say this all the time. What I'm looking for in um, a solitaire version is an easily applied game that feels like the main game itself. And so far, so frequently they fail on one or both of those criteria. The Oppobot was a delight. It's pull an event card. It either works or it doesn't. And if it doesn't work, the bot does a campaign action based purely on tables that are printed on the board. You just roll a die for what region they are. The regions are numbered. And you roll a die for what state they're going to pump influence in. The states are numbered. And that's it. Now, granted, near the end of the game, you end up rolling quite a bit because many of the states have been locked down either because they've already passed or refused to pass the constitutional amendment question. But all told, it was a marvelously simple system that felt a little bit like the real game and allowed me to concentrate on my own moves. And so I didn't feel like I was managing an opponent for me, that it was mostly that I was reacting to something that somebody else was doing, which is exactly what I, I, I want. And it gave me more ability to appreciate the all the historical details that were worked in, because I think one of the great things about historical gaming that's been happening, especially over the past 10 years, but especially over the past five, I think, is that it's m- moving away from the overarching and relentless emphasis on war. For a long time, historical gaming was war gaming, and the two were, were effectively interchangeable. And I really appreciate the fact that Votes for Women takes a lot of the mechanisms and game elements inspired from historical wargaming and preserving the sense of historicity and pre- preserving the sense of place and preserving some of the conventions like designer's notes, like developer's notes, like historical notes, and importing them into other great moments in history because I, I was shocked to discover that there are significant events in history that do not involve armed conflict. I is that, I know. Is that possible? Your, your silence absolutely represents your level of shock and surprise. And I, too, was similarly flabbergasted. And 
the suffrage uh, movement in the United States is a great example because, and it's, it's one of the examples that I think this political moment needs, if you'll allow me to wax political for a few moments, because you cannot tell the story of the suffrage movement without being intersectional, because it necessarily entails elements of class, of race, of immigration, of lots of other issues. And so it, it and it's woven seamlessly through the narrative of the game, because the narrative of the game is the narrative of the suffrage movement by and large. Although I still keep playing Sojourner Truth not for the event, but it's for a campaign action that wounds me deep in my heart every time I do it. But anyway, setting all that aside, I love Votes for Women. I wish it had become more broadly available in Canada in 2022. It absolutely would have made my list of the top 10 of 2022. And the components remain a delight. The production is a joy. Fort Circle Games deserves every plot it's been getting. Votes for Women is outstanding. And I think that everybody who has not yet played a historically inflected game like this, this would be an excellent place to start. Not only because of how well the history is rendered, and not only because of the fact that it imports a lot of these historical wargaming conventions into a non-war game, but because of how approachable the rule set is. And it manages to preserve that level of chrome. Card-driven games at their best allow this level of chrome without a high degree of rules up front. And so I absolutely think that this is the best approachable card-driven game. Definitely, I prefer this over Watergate. I think that 1960 Making of a President was, again, married to a bad scoring system. The Electoral College is a bad scoring system. I don't like it in politics. I don't like it in games. But constitutional amendments work far, far better. So at any rate, I could waps Rhapsodic for, for a lot longer about my enthusiasm for votes for women. I was a joy to bring it back, even in the solo version. I still look forward to trying the uh, the opposition party in against an actual human opponent. Votes for Women, designed by Tory Brown, published by Fort Circle Games. Well, speaking of solos that want to feel like the game, I'll take it a step further so that game feels like yet another game. I played Joan of Arc Orleans' Draw and Write solo version. It has that great mechanism where you flip a card... And it has a table on one side, and it uses the back of the next card that's coming ah, up. Yes. And I just think that's a, a cool mechanism. And it makes gameplay very easy for solo version. Uh, Mark and I played the regular version, and it's sort of drafting the traditional Orleans workers from uh, from pool. And all the, the solo deck does is it says, start at the top or the bottom of this list, and whatever's available, take that first thing. So nice and easy, and if it's a monk, then you're going to do the back of the card, and if you're playing, like, of the three little mini modules you can do in the solo version, the backs of the cards do all sorts of different things, so it's nice and interesting. I like the full-color sheets. The front part is when you're playing multiplayer. The back is for the solo. Played great. What did you think of the normal game of or, of Joan of Arc? As a, as a roll and write, it was fine. I mean, drafting is fundamentally what roll and writes do much of the time. Here, at least, there was a little bit more interactivity in the sense that A, it was an exclusive draft. So if you look at the That's So Clever games, typically it's a non-exclusive draft. Everyone can take the same value if they want. And it felt a little less spreadsheety than than a lot of the very spreadsheety roll and write games. There was a map where you were kind of notionally traveling around and building things. So it was slightly better than where a lot of the action was for me anyway, which was just crossing off squares in a goods matrix, which is basically just filling out some sort of weird matrix anyway. So it was okay. I mean, you can do a lot worse as far as roll and writes are concerned. If you're enthusiastic about the main uh, game Orléans, that'll help you in some areas, hinder you in others. During your rules explanation, you very gamely were like, okay, but it's important to understand 
that in this version it's different from the actual version of Orléans because you can't do X. I'm like, I don't remember Orléans well enough to remember <laughs> what X was. So I wasn't confused, but thank you. <laughs> so I don't know that it's necessarily the kind of thing where a lot of your knowledge can be imported because, again, it's mostly about filling out a matrix of stuff. But the components were nice. As you say, the setting is sold kind of sort of through the graphics. The sheet the sheet is very nice. You know, like Again, comparing this to a That's So Clever or a lot of other dice-based roll and writes, I did feel like I was doing something a little bit more substantial. And the less said about Welcome's to, Welcome To's Hey Geography of the Suburbs, the better. So you could do a lot worse as far as I'm concerned. So this was a review copy given to us right from the designer, Ryan Hendrickson. And, Ryan, and the other designer was Reiner Stockhausen. Our copy was from DLP Games. And I felt it really did reflect the Orleans. Because remember all the buildings that you could choose from, right? That has more than what other Roland rights have. That's uh, true. So it was like, you know, 20 different buildings you get to choose from, which makes your choices of those, you know, of the chits that you happen to draft, you have choices to do with them. The, the movement around the map, like you said, felt very similar. And you, if you built a building, then everyone else has to cross off on their sheet. There's a lot of that throughout the whole sheet at all, where you're crossing off, you know, it's sort of a race to certain parts of the map. Kind of. I mean, the, one of the salient differences is that in Orléans, you do have to kind of commit spatially to where your worker is. Every time you move, you're leaving behind opportunities, as opposed to the roll and write, which partially for physical reasons and partially for other game design reasons, I suspect, you're just expanding your network of availability. And so you're not really making any sacrifices or leaving anything behind every time you travel. Plays a lot quicker than Orleans does, that's for sure. Yeah, the, the level of decision-making was pretty good, given the duration of the game. And I will say, as will come up later when we talk about another drafting game, there were some instances where I took workers specifically because I knew you'd be able to make better use of them. So there was a certain amount of player interactivity in that sense. Well, the fact that I went back to it and played a solo version tells you something. I'm looking forward to playing it more often. Even Warm Boy, he is sort of, I guess, the roll-and-rate connoisseur, is very much looking forward to it. And that is Joan of Arc, Orleans, Draw, and Write. Look at this connoisseur and Orleans showing off your French. I know. Everyone knows that you started this podcast just so you could show off your French walker. It's a little tiresome, frankly. You dial, dial it back just a bit, okay? I'm sorry. Okay, thanks. I apologize. Okay. I'll be sure to edit this part out. Get to play another game of Quantum. Quantum is the Eric Zimmerman super minimalistic, almost 4X-y, but mostly punch someone in the face dice game. And... This is, unfortunately, super out of print. A lot of people are looking for copies, but it doesn't look like it's going to be reprinted anytime soon, which is a shame. It's a very approachable, very quick game. If you want to engage in silly space battles, you could do a lot worse, and you get to have a lot of the touchstones of 4X. You know, you get to move around the galaxy and control parts of the map and get special powers and do weird techs and all those other kinds of things. The key conceit of Quantum is that all your ships are dice, and they move a number of spaces equal to their pip value, but... In combat, lower values are better, so the low-value dice are really good at fighting, but really bad at moving around the map, and the higher-value dice. On top of that, every die face has its own special ability, which doesn't cost an action, and so you can really exert some clever combos to try to eke out that win, or to try to prevent somebody from horning in on your territory. And I've enjoyed Quantum every time I've played it. It's not always the most balanced experience in the world. Some people get more turns than others, and that can be determinative. 
very often the end game can degenerate into a whack the leader fest, but given the relative absence of rules grit and how approachable and delightful the theme is and how well it's executed, I find it hard to complain. If the game were twice as long as it were, absolutely Quantum's failings would be serious failings. As it is, they're just little quirks. And so I, I wish it would go back in print. My understanding is, is that this time they wouldn't have to give out two sets of replacement dice for the original oily dice. For those who got the original versions, I have all three sets of quantum dice that FunForge sent to me. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm responsible for it not being reprinted. How much they cost just to exactly. give you, send you all those oh, dice no. to Canada, isn't it? Like, like I'm the, I'm the problem. $600. I was in America at the time. Oh, all right. No problem. Then. But, but I'm, I'm the monster. It's me. I'm the problem. Mark, this realization that you just got. That's quantum we designed all got by there. Eric Zimmerman and Funforge, and you'll never have it again because I'm I'm greedy for dice. I use the dice. Speaking about being is greedy okay? for dice. Does that make it better? Who, uh, well, what happened in our game of Gang of Dice, Mark? Who's greedy for dice there? Uh, that yeah. Would, that'd be me. Yeah, exactly. So, speaking of silly dice games, we played Gang of Dice by Reiner Knizia, published by Mandu Games, a few times. Two-player, not so much. It's more of just reacting to what the other player rolled. Once you add more than two players, though, it becomes much more of a game. So you're flipping up a card. That is a threshold that you do not want to get to. You want to get as high as possible without going over the threshold. Sometimes the threshold's a number. Sometimes the threshold's a specific combination of dice. And you choose how many you're going to roll. You roll them Yahtzee style. You roll your initial, and then you get two re-rolls. Totally friendly. You know, pick whatever dice you want to re-roll. And then you're stuck with what you have and the other players have to decide how many dice they're going to roll and whoever rolls most pips wins that round and gets the dice after 12 rounds whoever has the most dice wins the game and if it's tied in pips it's whoever rolled the most dice yeah with two players it was very simple to react to whatever the star player did with multiplayer suddenly you have this realm of uncertainty about what to do if the first player gets a low total well obviously you want to go beat that but if they busted you don't know how conservative you get to be because someone's always waiting down your back fortunately the turn order issues aren't as degenerate as they might seem more on that later in another writer kitty game because whenever you win a round you're the star player for the next round now granted if one player is dominating you definitely want to be setting to their right as opposed to their left but that having been said in a game of this duration it wasn't so bad in my defense at the start of the game walker clearly explained that the tokens were equivalent to dice and what you do when you're low on dice when you sorry when you're what on dice? When you're low on dice. Low on dice. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. When you're low on dice, what you do, because the game comes with a, a, a lot of dice in, 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 you know, the gang of dice, but to supplement that, there are these tokens. You hand the token to somebody else, and then they give you three dice, and it's all equivalent. At the end of the game, you want to have the most dice, but the tokens are worth three dice. The problem was, I just felt low on dice all the time. And so I was constantly giving people the tokens that I had at the start of the game so I could have more dice. Because it was a great comfort to me, Walker. Yeah. I, I felt that I would eventually have enough dice to fill the hole in my heart. I feel a dice problem is is evolving here, Mark, and, and maybe an, a dice intervention might be... I can stop anytime I want. Sure you can. Dice. <laughs> that was Gang of Dice by Mandu Games, definitely the most delicious publisher name I know of. Play the game of Libertalia Winds of Galecrest. This is the Stonemeyer Games reprint of the Paolo Mori original of about 10 years ago. And I got the interesting perspective of somebody else at the table who, for whom Libertalia is a big deal. And he spent much of the game reminding me of the differences between the core game, the original game, the one that's foremost in his heart at least, and the one we were playing. Libertalia Winds of Galecrest is, uh, to my mind, superior to the original for the following reason. It is slightly less chaotic. 
Now, it's a simultaneous action selection game. And so necessarily in Libertalia, there's going to be a certain amount of craziness in that you try to anticipate what other people are playing, but you don't really have a good sense of why they'd play one card before another in a given round sometimes. So it's like, oh, they played the card that neutralizes my card this round. Oh, well. Ha ha ha. And it's okay. Look, that's fine. To a certain extent. In the original version of Libertalia, I definitely got the impression that simply resolving the different card abilities as after they were played caused a certain amount of head scratching. And at that point, you're not really able to make any anticipatory plays. Like, well, if I play B and he plays C and she doesn't play D at the same time as somebody else might have played E at a previous round, then victory. Instead, in the Stonemire Games version, it's a little more straightforward. It's like, well, if nobody else plays this other card this round, I'll get to where I want to go. And quite frankly, when it comes to that level of chaos, I don't also want a head-hurting level of permutations on top of that. Some people disagree. And definitely it was the case that after playing Libertalia Wounds of Galecrest, some people were persuaded that this was the better version. Other people were very much persuaded that the original was the better version. That having been said, there are two versions you can play in, in Wounds of Galecrest. One of them is slightly more intricate than the other, but at the end of the day, they're very, very similar. And uh, this is very much the sort of thing, let's call this the Antoine Boza model of game design, because this was designed by Paolo Mori, and we at Swag are huge fans of most of Paolo Mori's designs, except for arguably the design that made him famous, <laughs> which is to say Libertalia. It's not my favorite game generally, and it's certainly not my favorite of Paolo Mori's games. Similarly with Antoine Boza, we're both big fans of the games of Antoine Boza, with the exception of Seven Wonders, which is the game he's best known for. <laughs> this comes up not infrequently with respect to some of our preferred designers, but anyway. Libertalia Winds of Gilcrest by Paolo Mori, put up by Stonemeyer Games last year. We both got to play a game called Hamlet, the village building game. This was also a review copy given to us by the distributor. It's designed by David Chirkop and published by Mighty Board Games. And it's very interesting, sort of the, the tiles that you're using to, to build this village are very uniquely shaped. And the resource system is very interesting as well, because none of the resources actually belong to anyone, really. And the majority of the game, you're just figuring out how to move them to where you need them. And so you're building, you're, you're building victory point uh, tiles, you're building parts of the church, you're just trying to get the most victory points. Very interesting game. We streamed it this week so if you want to check it out you can check our live channel on youtube mark what do you think of hamlet the village building game okay i'm not in a position to give my full impressions because we played with a minor rules error and what hamlet seeks to do is exploit a couple of different things first of all you want to be able to exploit the changing economy of advanced goods they're the basic goods that start out on the board and then there are the advanced goods that get introduced as various people build new buildings and trying to work out the web of intersecting incentives whereby it is in your interest to develop a good that somebody else will use to build something is potentially interesting. Very Splatter-esque in that sense, right? Uh, similarly, Splatter-esque is a kind of uh, layered on top of that is mostly it's about getting resources where they want to be. You've got a very strong spatial element. And it's not even so much about what you're able to do, it's about where you're able to get the resources. And through this, you need to hire lots of donkeys. And in point of fact, it's one of those cases where your donkeys might even be more important than your workers. Because if your goods network is sufficiently robust, having fewer actions isn't necessarily a downside, because your actions will be more efficient. 
Uh, that part I found reasonably satisfying, and that part at least w- was was played properly by the, the rule set we did. I was getting strong Keyflower vibes, both by virtue of the sort of evolving nature of the economy and by virtue of the emphasis on getting goods to where they needed to go. Uh, a difference, though, is that the way that tiles enter the system in Keyflower is based on an utterly brilliant auction mechanism, as opposed to the way tiles enter the system in Hamlet, which I found comparatively less engaging. But I like how they not not so much as you as you purchase them to get them into the game. I like how it sort of video game them into the mix. It's like you have you know the the quarry and evolves into you know where you get better rocks or the granary evolves into the the bread making and then you add all these extra tiles. It's sort of like leveling up like you do in a video game. And I like how the feel of that. Uh, sure. I mean, it's a fine way to influence the influx of new tiles, but there's a complete disconnect between who triggers this so-called evolution and who gets to benefit from that so-called evolution. If I'm the one who builds the building that gives us access to basic grain, when and how the advanced grain tile comes out of the bag and who's able to take advantage of that is entirely disconnected from that. And indeed, I might be more interested in exploiting that tile when it comes out due to, again, the sort of the way the incentive structure of the resources works. If I'm the one in Hamlet who first exposes the economy to advanced grain, my grain will always be the superior grain, the top shelf, the premium, the par excellence grain. But at the end of the day, it doesn't serve to give, you know, players a very specific sense of agency. At the end of the day, it's mostly tactical, just responding to what short-term building incentives exist. And again, that was also something that I felt might have been lacking, a little bit more long-term incentives or a greater control over how the economy shifts. I might have appreciated a little more because frequently... As I say, this this might have been a, pro, uh, a prospect of the rules error. I will absolutely be returning back to Hamlet in short order so I can I can get a better sense of this. But very often, I got the sense that I needed to be very careful just not to set up the next person to do too well. And that disincentivized me from doing things that I might have otherwise have been inclined to do. And sometimes that made the economy less interesting than it could have been. So I'm cautiously optimistic about some aspects of Hamlet. And indeed, when, when I compare it unfavorably to Keyflower, that isn't necessarily a grave insult because Keyflower is amazing. But I would like to see how it works when played with all the rules perfectly uh, applied. And that is Hamlet, the village building game. Not enough Danes as well. People were too happy and there weren't enough Danes. More Danes. More maybe like barbarian raids from the sides, I think, were in short order. From Mighty Boards. Played a game of Claustrophobia 1643. This is the second edition of the two-player kind of sort of fantasy Space Hulk-ish game designed by Croc. The redesign was also co-designed by Laurent Pouchin, who has been involved in a number of skirmishy-adjacent type things that I've really appreciated coming out of France. And this was a game I got to introduce to Chip the Third, who comes from a sort of uh, tabletop miniatures wargaming background. And as always, a great time was had by all. Very much like Space Elk, you can play the first scenario over and over and over again. I've played Survivors at this point probably three dozen times, all told, across the two editions. And I'm still not tired of it. Playing both sides is wonderful. I experienced the same old gripes and appreciation of the new edition of Claustrophobia. 
graphically, I think it's a step back. They've tried to replace some language elements with icons that I can never really remember again, despite my experience with the game. And the miniatures are no longer pre-painted. But by the same token, this is a curated edition with a lot of expansion elements that are already baked in and an interesting card system for the human player to give them a little bit more variety, especially as the game draws on. So I wish there was some sort of way I could have everything in one edition. But as it is, suffice to say, you can find the base game of the original claustrophobic for, for sale in the secondhand market, my understanding is, without too much difficulty. And I can tell you, my preferred edition is 1643, but just barely. <laughs> so you definitely get the more adorable troglodytes. And really, at the end of the day, when you're evaluating board games to purchase, cuteness of troglodyte, I think, is an underappreciated criterion. Top 10. Yeah, ab absolutely. And so I think this is one of the absolute best two-player skirmish-adjacent kind of fantasy games. It's right up there with Space Hulk, as far as I'm concerned. Claustrophobia is a marvelous game. Shame about the Kickstarter-only distribution by Monolith. I think they could have, with a very small amount of effort, made it a more modest, medium-box affair that would have been price-accessible to a lot of people. But instead, they went Kickstarter-only because that's how Monolith be. That's just how Monolith be. So that's Claustrophobia 1643. So I got to play Spots. It was on Board Game Arena, but we do have a review copy from the publisher. Spots was designed by Alex Haig and John Perry and Justin Vickers. And it is a great little push-your-luck game. Looks very adorable. You have, so cute. You have these Dalmatian dogs, and for the Spots, they're sort of outlined their spots to make dice. Well, they're not all dogs, Walker. Did you see the non-dog? I did. The one. His guy. name is Doog. <laughs> he fools them all. <laughs> So there's all these different actions that you can get to roll dice in different ways. And and dice you can't use, half, you have to bury. But if your bury pool ever gets above seven, then you, you completely bust. And how badly you bust is all determined on how much you pushed your luck. Because you might have taken a turn to cash in the cards that were full. You might have thought you could fill the cards. And if you bust, then you remove all of the dice that you haven't cashed in and start again. It is... Easy to teach, quick to play. I would definitely try it out. Spots. Yeah, Spots is adorable. I should really get it back to the table again soon. We played Piazza Rabazza by Guido Hoffman and Jens Peter Schliemann by Zach Verlag. So, so, so. This is why we're friends, by the way. <laughs> Is that all the reason why? No. We're... Okay. One, sorry, this is one of the reasons why. Well, honestly, okay, you joke, but to my mind, I try not to judge someone too harshly, but I immediately appreciate someone more if they like hobbyist games and also dexterity games. Because there's a certain class of hobbyist gamer that has no time for dexterity games. Now, some people it's because of accessibility issues. Zero judgment there, obviously. But then there's some people that's like, oh, you know, you go play with your toys. I'm like, yeah, I will absolutely go play with my toys. No doubt about it. I like toys when it's Hero Escape. I like toys when it's Claustrophobia. I like toys when it's Food Chain Magnet. I like toys when it's Piazza Robazza. So the way Piazza Robazza works, magnets and wind-up toys. Do I have you? Have I lost you? I lost you, didn't I? I hope not. I, well, who? The people who are left, you're my kind of people. The way that it works is you're delivering pizzas, and sadly, I will admit, there's some tired racial stereotypes involved in your delivery drivers, Luigi, whatever. Uh, I mean, they're like... Not that the name Luigi is a tired stereotype, but, you know, it's, 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 it's very... They're leading into a certain vision of Italy and Italian people. At any rate, you have this plastic scooter at the end of a uh, uh, basically a flat stick. And you have to maneuver your pizza delivery person with these metal pizzas, but all the walls are magnetic. And so you have to deliver them to the correct wall, which represents the correct patron. 
Easy enough? Nope. Just so you get the vision, because the whole town is certainly is sort of raised half an inch off the table, so you can slide this this motorcycle through these doorways and and passages. Well, the motorcycle is is impeded by the walls, but the stick on which the motorcycle yes. is mounted is not, and so you're sliding around. All the while, the entire structure is wobbling like crazy because there's this spin-up toy in the middle that causes it to vibrate erratically. It's marvelous. It was and, such a great game. And the story about it is great because, you know, it's every oh, right. morning he gets up to, to knead the dough and he... And With he, such vigor. And he, it's so, he pounds it under the table so hard that the whole villa shakes. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would say it was probably a touch too long. Uh, but other than that, it was marvelous. I mean, very often I comment that when it comes to dexterity games, the victory conditions sometimes fall apart. So you've got a toy, but, you know, at the end of the day, you can't take it as seriously as a game. Not that I'm super competitive, but, you know, I'd prefer that I feel like it's a relatively fair competitive environment. Piazza Robazza has a very interesting system whereby if you accidentally deliver a pizza to the wrong person and it's something something that somebody else was looking for, they get to score it. And so what that does is it means that you have to be very careful about where you go and how so as to avoid accidentally handing points to your opponent. Yeah, it's not as though you, like, misjudge or, like, missee anything or accidentally do it. It's because it's magnetic. As you drive by, they just sort of, you know, it sucks it to the wall. Yeah. The the story is they reach out and grab it because everyone ordered pizza. They just assumed it's theirs. Precisely. And so you took the risk. You plotted that route. And so if you're careless and or you're, yeah, oh, gee, it's so good. I, I I don't know how I would feel about it multiplayer, though, because the downtime might become insufferable. Because one of the virtues is you don't keep going until your pizza gets snagged. You keep going until the wind-up toy runs out of energy. And so the runs are just long enough to let you go for a difficult route a couple times or snag an easy route and then go for other routes. And that part is really interesting and great. You have to manage your time. But if you're sitting there waiting for three other people to finish their routes, I could see that getting a little bit tedious. But I'm curious to find out. Well, I don't think I'd want to play with four, but three would maybe not be so I, I Well, start with three, see if that's doable. Yeah, absolutely. This is why I got into hobby gaming. Or Sorry, no. This is one of the things that keeps me so so deeply in the clutches of hobby gaming. Piazza Robazza is a delight. We also got to play Findorf. This is the new Friedman Freeze game. So this one is the Rio Grande Games Edition because they put it out in North America. And he never fails to please. This is yet another fantastic game where you have a list of actions you can do as sort of a, it is definitely a rondelle. It's basically a rondelle, yeah. So you're going through the rondelle and you can upgrade these actions, I guess, crusader style in a way, you know, because everything and the flow, the flow of this game. It's real. The flow is real, Mark. <laughs> it's a, at the very beginning, everything is just one. One sale, one buy, hire one worker, and then one of the actions is to improve your board. And that just means more actions when you activate that. Cause if you've got it, the money. It's action efficiency. You want to you know, get the most of your actions. You want to be able to sell stuff when you want because it is a normal market where when you sell stuff, the price will go down. And you want to be able to do things when it's available and when the prices are high. Findorf also is under the general mold of Paolo Mori and Antoine Boza in that he is best known for a game that we're not huge fans of, namely Power Grid. And despite the fact that he's been on an absolute tear over the past five years of designing stellar release after stellar release, Friedman Freeze doesn't design a whole lot of economic games. 
And he uses more or less the same market mechanism here that he did in Power Grid. There are certain forces and economic elements that just naturally consume peat. Peat is the only item or good that's on that's on the open market. You can buy and sell other things, but they work on a slightly different economy. And I wish that that part, specifically the market fluctuation of peat prices, meant more. It was significant-ish in the early, very early part of the game, and then it quickly faded into irrelevance. You know, four would get taken off for houses, but then the actions would just add four more back onto the market. Okay, we're at the same price. And then by that point, the peat being worth a dollar more or a dollar less didn't really matter. No one's economy really relied on selling vast quantities of peat, because by the end game, you're producing lots more of more valuable uh, elements anyway. Maybe this would shake out differently in other games. I'm eager to find out. But overall, the economic element, that part of it, didn't seem to manifest to a terribly satisfying Yeah, because take up the whole bottom of the board, and, and we only played, you know, it only fluctuated the very bottom end. Yes, it, was, it all stayed within the same narrow band. And quite frankly, it contributed to Findorf on occasion, despite being very, very rules-light and very rules-effective in terms of how efficient all the mechanisms are, it led Findorf to feel a little bit fiddly in that we were constantly moving pieces around uh, there, the railroads on top of that, and uh, yeah. And the the overall tempo of the rondelle, though, I found fascinating, because as you get to the bottom of the rondelle, you automatically pass, you do what... This is, this is how you know it's a Euro game. It has a bureaucracy phase. Are you having fun yet? And the answer is yes, because you kind of sort of pay a penalty, but by the same token, you get, you might get some income, you liberate your workers and do that. And how often you want to do that is really a function of what stage of the gameplay you're in, what the stage of your infrastructure is, where you're getting your cash, et cetera, et cetera. And so those trade-offs are great because unlike a lot of other Rondell games, and I, I think this may be the only time I've ever seen it in something that's so obviously a Rondell, you don't have to advance your, your worker. You can do the same action multiple times in a row. And indeed, that's what I did right at the start of the game. I like, I took a look at the board. I'm like, okay. And I just pinged this, the first action two or three times in succession. And I, I just liked that freedom. That option made it feel very, very different while still having a lot of the benefits and trade-offs and tempo considerations of your traditional Rondell game. I'm a big fan of Friedman Freeze's games, and I think that Findorf is another excellent big box Euro release from him. And it definitely gives you that sort of race feeling because you're building these big sort of big everyone's 50 points these buildings and and they're slowly disappearing and and you're and you're debating whether you want to do this action a couple, couple more times or do you want to race around all the tension was there very much looking forward to trying it again and just to emphasize the score system this is this is indeed one of the things that i find so refreshing in your comparatively simpler euro designers like friedman freeze like reiner knizia you, the scoring system for Findorf effectively bakes in the miscellaneous scoring for cashing in your old resources. And it's just like, oh, okay, well, to keep things simple, there's not going to be a separate score phase. It's just here's what everything's worth at the end of the game. Buildings are worth 50, and all your money is traded in on a one-to-one -one basis. It's like, okay. <laughs> it's just a great way to emphasize what's important and what's not, while at the same time not having some sort of more convoluted scoring, scoring scheme that would have effectively gotten you to the same place. That was Findorf. By Friedman Freeze. I played a game called Nemesis Lockdown, Walker. Do tell. Uh, Long-time listeners of the show know that although we've enjoyed lots of games by Adam Kupinski and Awakened Realms in the past, we're big fans of Lords of Hellas and some other things by Awakened Realms have done, uh, Nemesis was uh, uh, not really for us. Um, we strongly disliked Nemesis. <laughs> Nemesis Lockdown, however... Uh, had two things that made me try it. One was the assertion that, oh, well, it's different now, to a certain extent. And number two, I knew that I had a crowd that would enjoy it. And so I figured, why not? 
let's try Nemesis Lockdown. Some of the changes I overall enjoyed. There's this notion of the power that's going on in the facility. Rather than being a ship, it's, it's in a facility. There are these power tokens, and you can only use certain systems if they're powered. There are certain things that make the monsters more deadly in the dark. And there are ways to manipulate what's, what sections are powered and for how long and so on and so forth. That part I thought was kind of clever. Let me guess, though. The facility was, was built randomly, and there's no, no wall map or... or... Or blueprint or anything. Correct. Gotcha. And now they don't even... Bu- so uh, for a while, I was like, oh, okay, well, here, here's the perfect explanation. Are we all from outside the facility? Then we wouldn't know where things would be. No, some people work in the facility. So I don't understand why they don't know where... They- anyway, at least in Nemesis, they had the thematic explanation, something, something, cryosleep. <laughs> Memory problems. Whatever. Okay, setting that aside. Th- there was another new system in Nemesis that felt somewhat egregiously random. <laughs> There's this notion of a protocol about what the, the evil com- corporation slash government power will do once the game is over. They might murder everyone who hasn't sent the signal. They might murder everyone who hasn't studied these the aliens enough. They might just murder everyone in the isolation room but leave everyone else alone, etc., etc. And this is based on a semi-random system where you can kind of make some deductions over the course of the game, but at the end of the day, it's mostly a stab in the dark. So, if you fulfill your victory conditions, which are usually based on random factors anywhere, and you manage to survive, which are usually based on random factors anyway, then you have to hope that by the end of the game, the random tile pull doesn't mean, oh, guess what? You're dead. So there's that. I was reminded of all the things I didn't like about Nemesis. The overwhelming majority of the time, when you care at all about either the victory conditions or the whatever story is going on in your head, it's about getting from point A to point B and trying to find the right room, which is based on a random tile layout and... Just moving around is so tedious and takes so long and full of so much upkeep. And then an alien shows up and everything grinds to a halt. Even people that were feeling the Nemesis vibe, because I remember, I remember the process of playing Nemesis for the first time. I was so excited. I was enthusiastic. I was like, oh, okay, well, there are some neat things. And then the alien shows up and it's just the ultimate expression of tedium and lockdown. And not not in the not in the sense of of the title, but that's what they mean by the title. I think I got to do the thing that every game explainer hates the most. I get to remind people: No, you're in combat. You can't do that. No, I'm sorry, you're in combat. You can't. No, you can't. You, you can't. So I got to tell somebody: Wait. So I, I've I've already shot all my ammo at the alien, and it's not dead, right? So all I can do is run away, in which case it hits me and I die. Or I can melee it, and half the time I'll die anyway. Yes, that is exactly the situation you're in. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) There are ways to communicate the deadliness of aliens without bogging everything down. But anyway, this would just be a retreat of of the original Nemesis game. I don't see any reason why Lockdown will win you over if the original Nemesis didn't do it for you. There was only, there there was slightly more personality in the character decks. I'll give it that. That in the power system was kind of okay, but utterly, but utterly the same fundamental systems that I loathed and found tedious in the basic Nemesis, coupled with a very strange protocol system. There's going to be another Nemesis system. A third game, apparently it's going to emphasize more player versus player combat. No thank you. I just threw up in my mouth a little. Yeah, that's Nemesis Lockdown. If it, Look, if Nemesis is for you, if you like not Nemesis, if you like the rest of the world that goes on and on about how it's a gripping narrative, that time I stumbled blindly from point A to point B, this will be more. By Adam Kupinski, published by Awaken Realms. Mark, we got Blue Lagoon back to the table finally. This is designed by Reiner Knizia and put out by Blue Orange Games. This is like the sort of 
talked about two phase game or the, the first phase, you're sort of seeding the board with your huts. So you have better table presence in, in phase two, where you're spreading out even more and blocking people off where it's more of a sort of go type, you know, blocking game for the second part. Ooh, a very, uh, a, a very highfalutin comparison. I there. know. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Blue Lagoon is frequently compared to Through the Desert in a number of ways. Especially that Through the Desert itself is arguably a two-phase game, because first you're placing leaders, and that's very consequential. Is that because they both come in very small boxes, Mark? I'm not going to dignify that, Mark. Okay. But in Blue Lagoon, at least, it has uh, the benefit of the first phase being a little bit more protracted, and so you don't have all the, the major decisions front-loaded. But yeah, lots of blocking, lots of snagging resources, lots of triage, lots of trying to threaten someone else's board position to force them into playing in a way that's suboptimal for them and costing them tempo. Marvelously approachable game, incredibly simple rule set. The most complicated thing is the scoring, which is not uncommon in Reiner Canizia games. But I really like Blue Lagoon. It's hard to get to the table because people forget which one Blue Lagoon is. I mean, people make... Step one, they make a joke about the movie. Step two, they ask which one Blue Lagoon is again. And I say, it's the Reiner Knizia tile-laying game. And then their eyes kind of glaze over. It's like, uh, wait, wait which... Two-phase game. Oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> I still haven't had much luck with that. Blue Lagoon, marvelous game. Lovely lightweight tile-layer by Reiner Knizia. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Just a reminder for those of you that are encountering ads on Silver Robot Games for the first time, ad-free versions of the podcast are available on Patreon, so go check us out. And also, if you ever encounter an ad that you think is an unfortunate association that we shouldn't have, please do let us know. We're not in a position to comment because we're in Ontario and we haven't been able to hear any ads yet. And this is because we've told them no ads for gambling. And if you've ever listened to podcasts in Ontario over the course of the past few months, you've probably heard a lot of ads for gambling. I just want to say, if you consume any content whatsoever, make sure you reach out to those content creators and, and let them know how you feel. And if it is a, another board game creator, make sure you tell the publisher how they influence some of your purchases and whatever games that you want them to cover. Finally, it's an, it's a news light week, but there is this is a very important news. There's a call for submissions by board game academics 
boardgameacademics.com slash submissions. I'm going to include this link in the episode notes. They are going to be, they're calling for papers in pretty much any academic field. They want an abstract and a representation of your academic CV. They're accepting applications and submissions until the end of this month. They plan on having a sort of pseudo conference at Gen Con this year. And although I'm no longer in that particular game, I absolutely love the fact that people are approaching board games and board game design from a more academic perspective and from a theoretical lens. So if you're at all interested, if you're still in any uh, any academic field or if you're doing any sort of academic research on board games or board gaming, please do take a look at boardgameacademics.com slash submissions. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our main review, Reiner Knizia's Millie Fiori. So our feature game this week is Millie Fiori. Millie Fiori is Italian for Million Fiori, I think. Designed by Reiner Knizia and published by Schmitzpiel of 2021. A million flowers. No, it's actually a thousand flowers, Walker. You stepped on the joke. A million. (laughs) The joke is it's not... (laughs) A million. Now that I explained the joke, it's necessarily more funny. This is what I'm told by some of the less funny people of my acquaintance. (laughs) Millie Fiore is a two-to-four-player drafting, tiling game that is not entirely unlike a roll-and-write. More on that later. Reiner Knizia is a venerable game designer, and I've given him an intro more times than once in this podcast. Suffice to say that any two or three of his games might qualify him into into the ranks of some of the greatest designers ever made. Even people who don't like him. Say, Reiner Knizia's games, ugh, they're overrated. He's designed lots of terrible games. That is true. I will freely concede Reiner Knizia has designed lots of terrible games. He's also the guy who did Through the Desert, Tigers and Euphrates, Blue Moon, Raw, etc., etc. So, there's that. Anyway, Walker, why didn't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in A Million Fioris? Well, I feel as though Dr. Knizia was just getting tired of the whining. There's no player interaction in my rolling right. <laughs> no problem, he says. Hold my bow time. <laughs> Bam! Suck it. Millie Fiori, here you go. We got hate drafting. We have sniping. We have blocking. We have bluffing. We have area enclosure. We have first to a threshold. Point scoring. Limited resources. Turn manipulation. Multi-use cards. That's nothing to do with player interaction. I was just like on a on a roll there. You just want to include like, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I think you just destroyed your rhythm, though. You're going to get the rhythm back? No. It's gone now. (laughs) How do you hold someone's bow tie? Is it untied? Like, does he untie it? I think it's like a clip-on. He, like, flicks at you. I don't think he he wears it. He says, hold my bow tie. If you're devoted to that lifestyle, I don't think you wear a clip-on. True. I would hope not. Jeez. That would be embarrassing. (laughs) If your image is based on a clip-on, jeez. That's that's the dial-in. So, yes. So, I feel as though Millie Fury is very much an interaction rolling right. End of story. <laughs> yeah, so the reason why we compare it to a roll and write is here are some of the hallmarks of it. You have a variety of different places on the, bo- on the board, all of which score somewhat differently. And in explaining just the various scoring conditions, one gets a very strong roll and write vibe because that is one of the hallmarks of the design space. Like, well, this scores triangularly based on this sets, while this wants you to have a whole bunch in a row. This has pyramids. This has... Anyway. And if you get this, then it combos off of that. And lets you do another card over here. Yes. And this lets you do this over here. And Once then... you meet this threshold, you get to do a whole bunch of other things, and et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a very strong roll and write vibe from there. But as we frequently comment, one of the things that you have in a roll and write is everyone's got their own sheet. 
and everyone fills out their own little grid, whether it's a matrix, whether it's a map, what have you, even when it's a map, even when it's a first two, it's typically a question of, it's like, well, I got to the five and everyone's like, okay, well, I'll cross out the five, but I have lots of other places that I can get to here. It's all on a shared board. You're putting out your, and I'm not kidding, your lozenges, which are these very pretty semi-transparent pieces of uh, plastic, which are meant to represent glass because Mille Fiore is Italian for a million pieces of glass. Apparently. Yes. And the setup is dead easy. Like you said, you put it at the board, and then you shuffle some cards, which seem to be difficult to do properly. Uh, yes. And then... And There's then small cards. It's hard to shuffle a deck of small cards that's that thick. I don't have anything against small cards. Some people hate small cards. I don't have anything against them except when they're a big deck and it's hard to shuffle them. And then people complain that you didn't shuffle them enough because they don't understand how randomness works. Millie Fiori is Italian for a million cards. And you deal five to each player? Yes. And you're ready to go. But on that note, man, does it ever look cheap? <laughs> yeah. Right? They're saying, oh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make all these plastic pieces. Well, let's make all of the player pieces out of the same hard, cheap plastic. So even your boat is Oh, this... but I love those. No, even... you don't like the boats? No, the boats are this the clear plastic, so they just yeah. look like toys, your player markers. They is... look like they're made out of colored glass. Would you get on a boat made out of colored glass? I don't think they're meant to be seaworthy, Walker. Well, they're game pieces. No, Mark. No, they're shipping these goods, Mark. They're sh- not I, in, I, not in the game pieces, Walker. I would not. They I, ship them in other boats. I would not pay for shipping on a glass boat. How is this my life? Why am I having this conversation? Am I having a stroke? Is this a fugue? But it, but it's good that they're boats, though, right? Because it looks like they're riding on waves with how warped the board is. <laughs> yeah, there's that. <laughs> when you were talking about how how cheap the the game seems, I was thinking mostly about how incredibly warped the board is. It's a very thin board. People complained about this thinness of board when uh, Stroganoff was published in the retail edition. I now regret saying that I didn't understand what they were getting at, because the moment it warps a little bit, it's almost impossible to get it flat. It's a relatively minor deal, but when you have these relatively large plastic lozenges that are trying to straddle a board that's warping under half of it, I really like the, the, the lozenges. You can see what they're covering. I agree. The but they're nice and colorful. Fine. You don't see them in any other kind of game. And uh, the score markers in the boat, they, they just look unique. It's I, I, I haven't seen them in other board games before. I suppose. And I don't expect the boats to be seaworthy because I'm not an insane person. <laughs> The little small mark. I'm, so I, so I don't really. I, yes, Walker. Exactly. So I don't really think that I meant as actually seaworthy. I meant in the game they are meant to be shipping boats. <sighs> Whatever. Sure. Fine. Okay. Okay. Fine. So <laughs> we talked about the multi-use cards. Broadly speaking, the way the deck is arranged is is that there there's almost a one-to-one correspondence between the number of spaces on the board and the number of cards representing those spaces almost so there's a little bit of give the book the book states there is a one-to-one ratio uh, yeah but it doesn't quite shake out that way for a number of reasons one of the problems is for example in the pyramidal uh, structures you might end up in a situation where a, a large number of cards become unplayable even by the end of the game, precisely because that area wasn't focused on enough. Consequently, every card can be used for what what is boat movement, which is basically a semi-arbitrary number of points by moving your boat along a, a trail. You might land on one point, you might land on ten points. It kind of depends. Now, you can plan for this, obviously, but that's the safety valve for cards that are unplayable, because on rare occasions, you do end up in situations where your hand is unplayable. Of which there are six zones to play from. And like you said, you really need to focus on some of these parts. 
and you said there's some that score all differently, but they're all, they all have sort of, if you get all of a certain symbol, you yes. get 20 points. No, one, one of each symbol. One of each, sorry. Which one is of... either three or four different kinds of things. And so you're very much incentivized to move on to a new grouping, to move on to a next section. Specialization in a given corner of the board is strongly discouraged with one exception. And that is the sort of top board, which scores you one point for every piece in a contiguous group. So ideally you score one, then two, then three, then four, then five, et cetera, et cetera. And there, there's just no ceiling to the number of points you can score. You can always get more, which is why I think over some of the games you do see, you do see some people going in hardcore. Sometimes though, you just want to go in, get four or five pieces there. So you get your four, your, your, your four different symbols, score your bonus points, which is 20, 15, 10 or five, depending on how soon you get to it. And then you just move on. Sometimes, though, what that means is you start making the initial investments in an area. You get your one or maybe two different symbols, but you can't get that third or fourth due to a variety of circumstances, either drafting or positioning. So in other words, there are trade-offs and risks to be made. And that part, that idea of how much should you specialize in a given area is one of the things that I find pulling me in different directions in Mille Fiore, which I would remind you is Italian for a million priorities. It's so true. Now, speaking of the card drafting, this is very much where you do hate drafting yes. because no matter what cards you get, you'll find something that is somewhat useful, but sometimes you want to go to a specific area or you know that the next player in line wants to go to a specific area and you can just use that card to go, you know, for boat movement or take what they were going to do. But you only have a hand of five cards and the last card gets put into a pool for the uh, bonus actions. So in a four-player game, you're never going to see those cards come back to you. So you can't really sort of depend on any other cards. It's very random what you're going to get. Yeah. And so on and so on. I really like it in a drafting game where I can look at a hint of cards and say, mm, I bet this is going to come back to me. So I can pass on it the first time. It just doesn't work that way on Millie Fury. That's okay. Uh, but the, the amount of hate drafting is non-trivial. Often you're just focusing on whatever's going to score you the most points. But again, given the fact that sometimes you have to make those long-term versus short-term trade-offs, you can look at it and say, well, this is going to be more points now, but this one is really what the person downstream from me wants. And I can use it to start bootstrapping into that area for future benefit. And so, again, it's one of those uh, pu pulling in different priorities that Millefiore excels in. So like I just said, you get five cards, you're going to play four of them. And if you were the first player... It is a very powerful place to be oh, because yeah. you get to, you know that no one's going to take the spot that you want to go to. Yeah, because you all commit what card you're going to play at the same time and then they're executed in turn order. So you know exactly what you're going to get and you're, it's not going to get sniped out from you. You're, you, you know, you can go on the key track. You know, you're going to get the big points. You're not going to get stuck with the one. Same thing with the ship and other places. You know, you're going to get the card you want. And sometimes that can lead to a little bit of problem. Yeah, it, it's unfortunate. In theory, it balances out because everyone's going to play, going to be first player roughly the same amount of times. But in practice, it could be unsatisfying because when those big plays show up is unevenly distributed throughout the game. And so it's not uncommon to see a game of Mille Fiore where the start player advantage was really leveraged by the start player. And then next round, the cards that come up just don't do anything for that start player. And so they miss their chance, quote unquote, purely by virtue of how it shook out. 
And given how incredibly consequential it is, like, not infrequently, it's been a 10, 20-point swing by virtue of who could get there first. And so the risk is huge. And it's it's literally just a risk about the draw. Because you can sit there being the second or third player and say, well, the start player will definitely play this card if they have one. But you have no basis to know if they do. Sometimes later on in the round, you might because of what you passed on. But but often it's just, how, what are they getting from the deck? And, and those parts felt pretty unsatisfying. Sometimes it can be unsatisfying because if you're a newer player to it, you might uh, not understand how the scoring works. Because like you said, there are huge turns where you're going to score 40 to 50 points sometimes. Yeah. And and up to that point, everyone's just getting one, two, five. And then suddenly one player gets, you know, 60 to 40 points. And you're, <laughs> and you're thinking, well, the game's over. Not 60. 60 is a little high. It is. It you keep inflating it. Sorry. <laughs> 40 to 20 points. Millifiori, after all, is Italian for a million fluctuations. It's so true. So anyway, so newer players might get frustrated or put off or think they've lost the game before it's even started. Yes, I remember our first game in particular. (laughs) After I scored, I think I had like 40 points to somebody else's 10. And other people at the table were like, well, the game's over. It's like, nah. I was like, well, look, the game... Game's early. There are lots of different areas to go. Sure enough, by the end of the game, that lead had evaporated. <laughs> Some, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been in second, I'd been in third, I'd gone back to first. And so, yeah, the, the, the swings and points can be real, especially by virtue of the fact that there are all these bonus cards to be played. And sometimes those bonus cards hit the table, and they just sit there, and then suddenly, a couple rounds later, they're the most valuable cards to be played. And they're there for whoever can grab it. Every different region, much like it has its own criterion for giving you those 20, 15, 10, or 5 bonus points, in Millie they all have their own condition for when you get to play a bonus card. And sometimes it's literally the case that you snag a bonus action, you play a card from the bonus pool that gives you another bonus action, and you just keep going, and... you know, not a whole lot of downtime, but it's definitely those combos that, again, you sometimes see in rolling rights and can be very satisfying to pull off and very frustrating when you miss them because yeah. you do have to be aware of the board position to be able to take advantage of them. Yeah, and sometimes they can be sniped from you. You would be setting up to get a bonus action. Right. And some people might not have the cards they need to do what they want, but they have a card that will take a bonus action. And over in the bonus pool, there is a card that they can right. actually use. So they just steal your bonus action. Again, nice to that- be the start player. Yep, grab that card and start a cycle of points that is sometimes interesting. Yes, yes. Look, the variety of different scoring conditions are nice. The playtime is very manageable. The rules load is very approachable. And you do get a lot of those satisfying elements for for drafting. Overall, it's a very pleasant experience, Millifiori is. I can't put it in the same ranks as even the upper-tier Reiner Canizia designs. Because, again, I I, I can't help but feeling... That how well I'm doing is largely a function of what I've got when I'm in what uh, position in the turn order, which is okay. It's it's an all right lightish drafting game. I'd rather play Melee Fury than a lot of Roland Rights for sure, but it's 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 in a different kind of class. It's a little bit heavier. I don't know that it would really ap- appeal to big fans of Roland Rights particularly. This is again like a Reiner Kitsia take on Roland Rights for people like us who want a little more player interaction in their Roland Rights. So at the end of the day, it's an easy recommend if you're a massive Reiner Knizia fan or if that's exactly what you're looking for. But to me, I don't think it has the staying power or quality or depth of decision making that a lot of other games, even by the same designer, have. So it's an interesting diversion, but I don't think it's anywhere near the best of his work, even in the past couple of years. Yeah, I will not be looking to play it again. I enjoyed. I enjoyed it. Yeah, well, yeah I enjoyed my time with it. But I agree with you. Yeah. I, I I don't need to. I won't be requesting it ever again. I don't think. 
Uh, and I'd, I'd be willing to play it if, if, if people were, were playing it. But all told, I think I've, I've seen the combinations. It was interesting to learn the ropes. And I'm not saying that we've mastered it, but I don't think that there's enough there there to keep going back yeah. to Melee Fury. And it was suggested by a listener, and we we're more than happy to give it a try. And we are slaves to our overlords, Walker. That's right. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please check out our website, sowronggames.com slash contact. You can also go to sowronggames.com to search all of our episodes. If you want to know if we've discussed a certain game in the past, just put the game name in the search bar and you'll find out in which episodes we discussed the game. And you can also find out how to send us emails or contact us through other social media. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if we can. Thank you again very much for spending time with us and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Welcome once again to Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater in honor of His Grace, the Reverend Dr. Dr. Vincent Duke of Diesel, Esquire, OBE. Today we will be discussing the M. Night Shyamalan movie, Knock at the Cabin. I thought he wasn't allowed to make movies anymore after Avatar. (laughs) That's one of the things that's amazing. No matter how many duds he makes, there's always someone willing to give him $20 million. I don't know what it is. He's, there's just always someone willing to fund his next movie. It's, Why can't John Waters get this luck? Not that John Waters is my favorite filmmaker, but John Waters can't raise money for his movies no more. And anyway, <laughs> I don't understand how Hollywood funding. And in my opinion, I don't think there's any way we can talk about this without spoilers. So be aware there are spoilers really? for this movie. I really think so. You think so? I, well, I think that for me, the, pre- okay. the premise of this movie, because of the director and because of his, his pedigree, that there's always this weird twist sure in the movie yeah and and it was not in this movie that's true it was right from the beginning they told you what it was going to be about yes and you keep sort of thinking that it's going to go off in this weird tangent sure and it just doesn't yeah this is why we're here this is what has to happen yeah the premise is laid out in the first 10 minutes of the movie and that is indeed what happens and this is what has to happen yeah, yeah, yeah. so i am saying that that's just what i th- for me that's what led to the most tension because of his his past and sure. what, what he usually does, I'm just waiting for this interesting. And, okay, and, that's and, fair. And not that yeah. it, and not that it was a bad thing. That's what made it so sure. good. Sure, was the fact that nothing happened. That this is what. So sort of a, a, a meta. The tension was was from a meta perspective because of the viewer's experience with the writer director's previous work. Just so interesting. I wanted. I mostly this movie failed for me uh, because I didn't feel any tension. I kept comparing it in my head, and this may be an unfair comparison. I was comparing it to Cloverfield Lane in that they've got some similarities as well, right? You've got a bottle situation where people are are, are stuck in a, a given location, and you have the main character attempting to convince the quote-unquote uh, point-of-view characters, the normal people, of something manifestly crazy. And the tension being derived from the uncertainty about what they're doing and how violent they're apt to be and what they might do next. The difference is, and I realize that I'm a, I'm I'm in a minority on this. I think that the script was writing checks that Dave Batista couldn't cash. Oh, I think it was the totally opposite. 
I don't think I, and I don't, okay, maybe it was the maybe it was the script's fault either, right? Uh, sorry, maybe instead it was the script's fault, but I I just didn't get any attention from his character. I on the other hand, if you look at John Goodman's performance in Cloverfield Lane, right from the outset there's tremendous te- a sense of implied menace. Like he was talking very politely and kindly, but at the same time, you never know what he's going to do. Whereas in in the case of, as you said it, Dave Batista shows up. He says, "Hi, I'm Dave Batista. Here's what's going to happen," and then it happens. Yeah, I, I, that's what I loved about it. Yeah, okay. I it, just it, it's like there was no playing around, and, and you know, everyone, like the people that were watching it with me, they're like, "But this was." It's like no, and it's like, why don't they just kill? No, these three have to come to a decision. These four cannot do anything but make them make that decision. Okay, then let's talk about that. I found it super contrived, and at the point where there's that much detail, you don't get to hand wave, you know, it's some divine provenance thing. Right? Even Let's even compare this to a previous work by by Shamal, because I I kind of enjoy Shamal. I think he's a competent filmmaker. I even enjoyed Signs, for crying out loud. I thought it was okay. I'm not going to endorse the theological perspective that it adopts, but I thought it was okay. But Signs, as well, was about faith in some sort of weird plan that you can't quite understand. This, too, was kind of sort of about that. But the plan was just very specific and incredibly arbitrary and never explained in its intent based entirely on faith of the narrative of Dave Batista. True. The, the, the final outcome, like the, how they delivered the message and how they sort of figure out these are the, you know, these yes. are the four blah, blah, blah horsemen. And that was interesting. But then the, like just the final thing. And then well, the fact that there were the four horsemen wasn't even set up well. No. Well, in a way, like how we explained it, you know, this <sighs> is, you know, anyway, like I said, I don't want to spoil you're, it. You're familiar with the sacrifice of Isaac, right? No. Okay, well, God comes to Abraham and says, to prove your love to me, you must kill your son. All right? And just before he's about to do it, uh, God shows up and says, okay, you've demonstrated your faith. You know, go forth. I would put it, regardless of your thoughts on the sacrifice of, of, of Isaac, either in the context of a theological or from a narrative perspective, the story doesn't get better if Dave Batista is the guy who says, by the way, God told me that you have to go kill your son. That doesn't make the story better. It makes it arbitrary and silly. And there was other silly parts too. Like if any of them showed any sort of evidence of these visions they had, they just sort of showed up. Yeah. Like why didn't they bring the drawings or bring these things? Yeah. See, look, I, I drew this when I was four, and look, it's yeah. exactly like your cabin and all this thing. You can't tell an interesting story about faith when it's that arbitrary. It's not based on values. It's not based on narrative. It's just based on the testimony of strangers, purely. And I don't know if he if, if he meant it to be a meditation on faith. Certainly not on religion. This was not a movie about religion. So that's fine, which is good, because it would have been a terrible movie about religion. But as a meditation on faith, it's bankrupt, because if that's his vision of faith, that's not what faith looks like. Yeah, and it's like so, <laughs> faith is not a pro wrestler asking you just to believe some crazy thing because he says it. Like that's not. What yeah, it is. and and it's exactly like the the killing at the end where it's not explained. It's the why is the killing of each horseman bring on a bring on? Yeah, a thing? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like why why does that happen? Because it makes for a good scene. And yeah, he wanted, to, he wanted to film some violence. Yes, just he so. thought that would increase the tension. The the other thing that kind of disappointed me, and again, this is wanting the movie to be something else. This is kind of like a hypothetical. Uh, scenario from uh, the Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. There's a, there's there's a bit in the Brothers Karamazov where where they say, "What if you could secure the perpetual peace and happiness of humankind, and all all you had to do was torture to death some small innocent child? Would you be able to do it?" 
And this is, I, I actually taught this to my students. It was one of the, the, the thought experiments and it's a good way to, to, to capture it. And it's a good way to, to tell how consequentialist you are, how principled you are, how deontological you are. The only perspective that was ever articulated over, okay, there were two perspectives. There was the implied perspective of the quote unquote horseman, which was, well, we've got these visions that say this is how it's got to be. So that's, that's absent principle, right? It's just a, a principal neutral position. They feel compelled. They're driven by some sort of higher purpose that they can see and yet are comically uh, consistently unable to communicate to the protagonists. And then there are the protagonists who just react with shock and horror, which is appropriate. The only actual substantive position that's articulated was by one of the two fathers who says, I hate the rest of the world, so why would I bother sacrificing for them? Which is a perspective, and that's fine, but it doesn't really grapple with anything remotely resembling principle. And so I would have liked a little bit more substance there. It was mostly just, this is horrifying, I will not engage with it. Which is a fine reaction, but not necessarily the most substantial movie. It was okay. Look, it was competently executed. Yeah, I'm not saying it's the best movie of all time. I just, it, I just didn't feel the tension. It just left me... Really wondering if I, you know, am I am I enjoying this? Was this, <laughs> you know, it, it was just this sure. weird? I watched it right to the end, and uh, you know, kept waiting for this like weird twist or or you know hidden things in the background. Sure, like, there was that one thing where the, you know there was a light in the background. and He said he saw yep, a yep, person, yep. and and so I thought you know maybe I'll I, watch anything with Jonathan Groth. By the way, that man is weapons grade handsome. It's true. Anyway. <laughs> I was thinking maybe I missed something. Like maybe there was these hidden yep, things sure. happening throughout the whole movie. I wasn't sure what was going on. Anyway, I, it's definitely worth a watch. Yeah, I will I will give him credit for uh, Shyamalan for not resorting to his same bag of tricks. He's let us down so many times. Uh, and it's 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 competently he's a he's a he's a workman like sorry workman like that's not that's a gendered term he's a he's a competent director he knows how to frame a scene but normally he's good at building tension and i just didn't feel it and you know and i'm i'm just i think that every role i'm sorry every role that dave batista has ever played would be better played by vin diesel as would say you just have vin diesel jealousy that little vin on the brain yeah yeah it's constant comparison you can't live up mark the bar is too high (laughs) Okay. <laughs> no, actually, the real problem is is that Vin Diesel refuses to be in actual movies anymore. <laughs> like, he just has no interest. Vin Diesel was classically trained. He's a theater actor, and he used to be in indie movies. And he's just not going to do that anymore. No. He just wants to be in movies where he's in big fights where he always wins. Which is, I mean, I can't blame him. Yeah. <laughs> I can write contracts like that. I, I do say, yeah, if you can cherry pick what you play. Then yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for Masterpiece Theater. See you next time. Bye-bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off, my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.